John chapter 4 opens, Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, he, being Jesus and his disciples, left Judea and departed again to Galilee, but Jesus needed to go through Samaria. So Jesus came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And if you haven't been with us the last two Sundays, we've looked at Jesus' time here in this city of Sychar. Now, verse 43 of John 4, where we pick things up. After two days, Jesus departed from there and went to Galilee. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. As John returns to the motion of our text, letting us know that Jesus departed from Samaria after these two days in Sychar, and then proceeds to continue on to Galilee. John adds for us here a bit of his own commentary, noting that Jesus testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. While this recollection appears to be strange in the moment, kind of an odd place for John to recall Jesus testifying of this. Please realize that John is bringing this statement of Jesus to the forefront of our minds within what context? The context is the incredible, amazing, radical honor and respect this unlikely group of Samaritans had just demonstrated to Jesus. As an example of this, John 4, verses 40 through 42, we saw that when the Samaritans had come to Jesus, they urged him to stay. So Jesus stayed for two days, and many more believed because of his own word. Then they said to the woman, Now we believe not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him. And we know that indeed he is the Christ, the Savior of the world. It is a sad truth that that type of reaction that we see within the Samaritans of this city, you'll never see duplicated anywhere in Galilee or Judea. So, verse 45, when Jesus came to Galilee, the Galileans were told received him, having seen all the things he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they also had gone to the feast. Now, just pause for a minute. Don't forget the flow of John's gospel. In John chapter 2, Jesus and his disciples make the long pilgrimage from Galilee, this region surrounding the Sea of Galilee, down the Jordan River Valley, upward through the Judean wilderness to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Passover. Iconic. Awesome. Upon their arrival, as John 2 records, Jesus does something incredible. He goes into the temple and he cleans out the house, right? He clears things out and he proceeds to then over the next few days teach the people and perform signs and wonders or miracles. And it was during this evening, uh, during this week, one evening, that Jesus has this incredible conversation with Nicodemus that's recorded in John 3. Now, once Passover wraps up and the pilgrims Jesus initially had come to Jerusalem with return to Galilee, Jesus doesn't. He does something different. Instead of going back to Galilee with the pilgrims he had come to Jerusalem with, John 3 ends with Jesus instead camping himself out at the Jordan River, Judea, where he preached and, according to the context, his disciples baptized. Now, the point is that this is, as we get to 
the end of chapter 4. This is the first time that Jesus has been back in Galilee since the exciting events that occurred during those seven days of Passover in Jerusalem. At this juncture, the only miracle that Jesus has performed in Galilee, keep this in mind, was he transformed water into wine at a private wedding. And yet, because of all of the things that they had seen Jesus do in Jerusalem, John notes that upon Jesus' return, the Galileans, oh, they receive him, one of their own. The subtle contrast of the Galileans receiving Jesus while we were just told that the Samaritans had believed in Jesus, accepting him as the Christ, the Savior of the world, sets the stage for this final story we have recorded in John 4. A story that will conclude with verse 54. John writing that this again is the second sign Jesus did when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. So let's look at the story. Verse 46. So Jesus came again to Cana of Galilee, and then John adds, where he had made the water wine. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum, another city of Galilee. And when he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and implored him to come, to come down, to heal his son, for his son was at the point of death. Let's begin by establishing what we know from the text of this certain nobleman. First, the Greek word we have written here as nobleman can literally be translated as the king's man, kingsman. No doubt, this man was likely an officer of the king, and in context, that king would have been Herod, who the Romans had given jurisdiction over the region of Galilee. Now, since Capernaum was one of the largest cities on the shores of Galilee, it's likely this served as his headquarters for the area. Now, with that in mind, it's safe for us to say, or to at least assume, to conclude that this nobleman, by definition, would have been wealthy. He's a kingsman. He would have also been influential. As the story develops, we'll come to learn this man had servants. Something unique, further substantiating this position, his wealth and influence. In many ways, his status as a kingsman, his position on the king's court, afforded this man and his family the kind of life that was generally insulated from many of the common hardships the normal citizen faced. He had a good life, a posh life. Secondly, from the text, we also know the man was a father, specifically a father of a young boy. Well, the Greek word translated in verse 47 as son is generic. In many ways, it's nondescript, only implying a male gender. The word used later in the passage, verse 49, the word child, it's more loaded, more specific. It actually indicates that the boy was young, young in age, likely an infant or a toddler, but not much older. Like, there's no question, and I'm a dad of two young boys, no doubt in my mind, especially in the context of that culture, that, that this son was the apple of this nobleman's eye. The third thing that we know from the text is that this nobleman was facing a personal trial of such proportions 
that he was utterly and completely desperate. Though it's true that the nobleman was largely immune from many of the challenges facing the commoner, no position, as we know, no amount of money can ever insulate a man from sickness. Tragically, John tells us that this man's young son was at the point of death. In actuality, by the nobleman's later admission, he says this to Jesus, it seems that the boy's death was all but certain. There was no hope to it. Now, aside from that detail, we're also told in verse 52 that this little man was specifically suffering from a high fever. In the Greek, the word we find here, fever, it literally can be translated a fiery heat. Once again, as a father of two young sons, I can tell you, and if you have kids, you'll testify, that there is nothing worse in this whole world than to have a child sick, but to have a child sick with fever. Not only are young children simply unable to tell you what's wrong, they're unable because of the limitations of language to really tell you where it hurts. They leave you to make guesses, right? You have to guess. You don't really know. They can't articulate it. But fever in a young child, man, that's particularly brutal. To hold a child in your arms. It's not just that you see that the child's suffering. You can feel it. You can feel them burning up. You can see the sweat, followed by bone-twisting chills. Fever. It's absolutely terrible. Now, as you'd reason... Since this kingsman possessed considerable means, power, wealth, influence, there is no question in my mind that his sick child, this little boy, had received the best medical care available. <laughs> he didn't have Obamacare. He and his wife consulted with doctors. They visited specialists. They had gotten second opinions, tried various treatments, even been visited by local rabbis who prayed over the child. They possessed round-the-clock nurses, but all to no avail. You know, because most men are inherently problem solvers, having a sick child you can do nothing for, man, it hits a man at his deepest levels. Like the inability to see a problem and not be able to do anything to fix it. To even help. Man, it compounds the torment. I'm sure this man, in his desperation, had found himself, as many of us, crying out to God, just let me take the sickness. Just spare my child. Sadly, the diagnosis was terminal. No one knew what to do. Imagine the hopelessness when he was told his child would die. Finally, the very fact this nobleman ends up going to Jesus when he heard that he had come into Galilee tells us that he was keenly aware of the events that had taken place in Jerusalem. Now, we can't say with any certainty that he had been an eyewitness to any of the, the miracles that Jesus had performed, but he had heard. He had been privy to the, the, the gossip mill. He had enough information to act. As John recalls the scene, Interesting that he makes no mention of what Jesus was presently doing. 
He only focuses on the desperate actions of this nobleman. John tells us that he went to Jesus. He heard that Jesus was in town. He had heard the rumors of what Jesus could do. He goes. And we're told that he implored him to come down and heal his son. Well, this man had enough knowledge of Jesus to believe that Jesus possessed the power to heal his son. It seems that his only issue centered upon whether or not he could convince Jesus to come down with him from Cana to Capernaum to his house to heal the boy. Now, though we're not given the specific details of his appeal, he comes and he implores. We're not given a record of what he says. But you can reckon nothing was off limits, right? I'm sure the man offered Jesus money, promised political influence, made moral promises, guaranteed he'd become a better man. In the original language, the word translated as implored can be better stated as begged. His son was dying. He would die. His money did him no good. His influence did him no good. His position did him no good. The man's out of options, and so he comes and he begs to Jesus for help. Keep in mind that in his present desperation, this man doesn't appear to care at all what anyone thought of him. His need (laughs) trumped his pride. Imagine this man who is no doubt donning his fancy robes reserved only for dignitaries, dispensing with the pleasantries and the formalities and coming, begging, and falling on his face before Jesus. Now that culture, culture of the day, a nobleman of such incredible clout resorting to begging, it was unheard of. No one would have done this. It was unexpected, if not shocking. And yet circumstances had stripped from this man any sense of hubris or decorum. Time was of the essence, and he saw Jesus as his final hope. Well, Verse 48, then Jesus said to him, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. And the nobleman said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus said, Go your way. Your son lives. Well, I will admit that Jesus' response, it does kind of come across as if he were being a little insensitive, doesn't it? Especially in light of this desperate man laying before him prostrate, begging for help about his dying son. But keep in mind that what Jesus is doing, what he's articulating, the point was of the utmost importance. This statement. And making the statement, unless you people, now, now people in your Bible, it might be italicized. And the reason it's italicized is that it's not in the original text. But it's added by the translators because you, in the Greek, it's plural. So Jesus is not just speaking to the man. He's speaking to the multitudes, the people, in a broader sense. He says, you people, unless you see signs and wonders you will by no means believe. And in making this statement, Jesus is doing something important. He's both issuing a rebuke to Israel along with a particular challenge to the man. 
And he's doing this in context of his recent experiences with the Samaritans. While the Galileans had received Jesus because of the signs and wonders they had seen him perform in Jerusalem, they had yet to believe in Jesus for who he was, the Christ, the Savior of the world. You see, in contrast, while Jesus had performed no specific miracles in Samaria, none like he had in Jerusalem, the Samaritans, it wasn't just that they were receiving him, they believed in him as the Christ, their Savior. Why? Not because of signs and wonders, but because of his word. His word. Not only is Jesus condemning a faith system based solely on what one sees or, for that matter, experiences. But he's illustrating the truth, an important truth, that greater faith is demonstrated when one believes God's word and then acts accordingly. This is why, in response to the man begging him to come before his child dies, Jesus simply says to him, go your way, your son lives. His word and a promise. Right from the beginning, you should note that Jesus, he's seeking to correct a fundamental misconception behind the man's request. Come, my son is dying. You need to heal him. You see, the misconception fundamental to his request, it, it, it demonstrated a limitation of, of how he saw Jesus, of who Jesus really was. This nobleman, yes, he rightly believed that Jesus had the power to heal, or he wouldn't have come, right? But he falsely believed that Jesus would have to be present to perform such a miracle. Yes, he knew Jesus could heal his son, but the misconception was that Jesus would have to come with him in order to heal the child. Uh, on a side note, while this is, point isn't exactly relevant to the story, I should also mention the other misconception that the man has was that his miracle was dependent upon a specific timetable. He says, come before the child dies. You realize Jesus could have still healed the child after he had died? Like, we'll see this in, in the Gospel of John. In his, in his dealings, the, the, the resurrection of his dear friend Lazarus, Jesus could still heal the boy, yeah, before he died or even after he died. Not only is the misconception Jesus had to be physically present, but the misconception is that Jesus had to operate on a timeline the man felt essential. Jesus didn't need to do either. What's essential to understanding about Jesus' statement to this desperate man? Like the key point here is that Jesus is giving the man, he's equipping him with an incredible promise. He's giving him a promise. The man comes desperate. His son is going to die. And what does Jesus say? Go home. It's okay, man. He calms his fears. He tells him, he declares, your son's alive. It's all right. Now let's be fair. Believing such a promise would require, it would demand an improbable measure of faith in Jesus from this man, right? And yet, isn't it true 
that a promise is really only as sure as the person giving it. Once again, and in light of the fact the nobleman had limited exposure to Jesus, at best, Jesus, the, the whole point of it, Jesus' challenge centers upon the way in which the man viewed Jesus. The man wanted Jesus to come and physically heal his son. Instead, Jesus equipped him with a promise that his son was fine and then sent him on his way. Obviously, the crux of the situation and the issue of faith came down to one central thing. The trustworthiness of Jesus' word. When Jesus says to this desperate man, your son lives, I think it's safe to assume many obvious and natural questions begin swirling around in his mind, right? How can you know that? Like, how can that even be true? All the doctors, all the physicians, all the specialists said death was a certainty, but you're telling me it's not? Like, what authority do you, Jesus, really have to make such a claim? Can I trust that what you've just said is indeed true? Is your word reliable? Can I believe you? These are the thoughts that naturally are going around, percolating in his brain. And it's in that moment, this nobleman is left with a choice we all have to make. Believe Jesus' word. Believe the promise that he had just been given through his word and obey and act accordingly, or doubt the promise, fail to believe, and remain in this place of desperation and hopelessness. You know, as a Christian, I'm sure that you know the importance of believing in God's word and trusting in God's promises, right? You've probably heard multiple Bible studies about that. The importance, God's word, believing, trusting, and promises. Let me ask this question. Do you know why belief in God's word is the greatest form of faith? Like greater than a belief system based on signs and wonders, what one can see or experience? Do you know why the Bible makes the claim that believing in God's word, holding fast to his promises, is the greatest form of faith? Let me answer. Believing in God's word and more specifically, the promises given to you in God's word and then acting accordingly is essential. Why? Because it requires absolute faith in the one making the promises, the one uttering the word, the person of God. That's why it's the greatest form of faith, because it requires you to make decisions about Jesus. Think about it. In making the appeal for this noble man to believe, to trust, to place his confidence in his word was akin to Jesus asking the man what? Bro, will you believe me? Will you believe me? Will you trust me? When it was all said and done, the man had to make two important determinations about Jesus. First, did Jesus have the power to heal his son apart from being physically present? Is Jesus greater than what I think he is? Does Jesus transcend my misconceptions? 
And secondly, would such a man make a promise that wasn't true? Those are the two determinations the man had to make in the moment. Maybe think of it a different way. The man had to make this decision. First, was Jesus able? Was he able to know? Was he able to heal? Was he able? And two, was he the type of man that would make a false promise to a desperate man? The second half of verse 50. So the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him. And he went his way. And as he was now going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, Your son lives. The same words Jesus had uttered, right? Then he inquired of them the hour when he got better. And they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. So the father knew that it was the same hour in which Jesus had said to him, Your son lives. And he himself believed in his whole household. This again is the second sign Jesus did when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. Now there are some who make the case that the miracle of the story centers upon Jesus' ability to supernaturally know that the child had gotten better, as if the miracle was a word of knowledge. And while there is some merit to that being a miracle in and of itself, right? I mean, apart from the supernatural, how would Jesus have even been able to know the son was, was better, that the fever had left? And yet, you know, such a position, it fails to give Jesus his due. Notice, when the nobleman gets word from his servants that the child had indeed pulled through, your son lives, he, quote, inquired of them the hour when he got better. Now, in the Greek, this would be better translated, not he got better, but when did he begin to mend? It's kind of as though he's saying, when did my son turn the corner? But it's now the response of the servants to this question that tells the tale. They replied, what? Yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. This all gets lost in the translation. The nobleman wants to know when the child started to show signs of improvement. But the servants are basically responding to him by saying, there wasn't a gradual improvement. There was one moment the boy was about to die near death, and then in an instant... The fever was completely gone. He's not playing around. This, this phrase, the fever left him, can be literally, the fever was sent away. The man is expecting a gradual improvement. The servants are like, no, wasn't that? It was instant in a moment. Now, sadly, this is where I think most of the commentary on this passage ends up falling off the rails. And in doing so, I think kind of misses the whole point of the story. Now, let me set, set this thought up with a simple but important question a lot of people get wrong. When was the boy healed? Now, there are those who will use this story to emphasize the essential importance of your obedience, obeying God's word and trusting in God's promises, especially when it comes to a person experiencing the blessings of God, that obedience enables the blessings. They will answer this question. When was the boy healed? By claiming the boy was healed the moment the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went and returned home. That's how a lot of people, and I listen to a lot, a lot of people, that's how they would have answered the question because that's the application of the Bible study. 
Regrettably, though, that isn't what the text says happened. Notice, look back. When the man leaves Jesus and begins the trek home, only to run into his servants that are coming to inform him that the boy is indeed fine, the man immediately begins to inquire as to the specific moment the healing took place, right? Then after an exchange with the servant, the nobleman makes this determination. Quote, it was the same hour Jesus said to him, your son lives. Like, understand, the man's inquiry leads him to an important realization, the grandest of realizations. When Jesus spoke those three words, your son lives, the fever left his son, and his son was healed. Now, don't miss this. But the way in which John sets up the story tells us this. The miracle of the boy being healed happened when? When Jesus spoke and not when the man believed. Please know that. The, the implications being that the healing occurred before the man's obedience it was therefore independent of the nobleman's actions altogether. Yes, it's true. The passage tells us the man believed the word Jesus had spoken to him and went his way before he saw any tangible results. For this, we should give him credit. And it's also true that, that on his way home, equipped with and acting upon this promise that his servants met him and told him that his son was alive, an amazing fact no one can dispute. Obviously, we know that this man possessed a genuine faith in God's word, a faith that his son would live. And we know this, why? Because he was willing to act as if the miracle had occurred before seeing any evidence the miracle had indeed occurred. Yes. The man's obedience, as yours and mine, should be seen as the evidence of a real and genuine faith. But, and this is the question, I personally could not escape. One that actually had me delete about half of my Bible study because I determined it was wrong. In a point not one commentator even considered. Was it the nobleman's obedience and faith in Jesus' word that yielded the healing. Think of it maybe another way. If the noble man had not believed, would his son have died? And the answer is no. The son would not have died. Now this might be controversial, but I honestly believe the young boy would have been healed regardless of the actions of his father. Let's say the man, hypothetically. Upon hearing Jesus' promise, your son Lee lives, proceeds to scoff at his word and left to go someplace other than home. Would the boy have then died as a result? Absolutely not. In actuality, I kind of believe the way the story ends would have still been the ending. 
at some point, the nobleman would have had to return home, right? He scoffs at Jesus. I don't believe that. I'm out of here. I'm going to find somebody else. And he goes and he searches around, finds nothing. And then he's coming back, or maybe the servants find him. Either way, at some point, what revelation, what grand reveal would the man have gotten? Your boy is healed, and then he would have said, when did that happen? And he would have realized it was Jesus. That when Jesus spoke the words, it happened. You see, the man's obedience didn't yield the blessing of Jesus. The blessing of Jesus came before his obedience. Now, now here's why I can say with absolute certainty the boy would have been healed anyway that the boy was actually healed the very moment Jesus spoke these three words and that it had nothing to do with his obedience or really anything to do with the man or his faith. According to Isaiah 55, 11, the scriptures declare an undeniable truth. God's word never returns void. This means if Jesus, the son of God, utters the words, your son lives You can take that to the bank. It means his son was going to live regardless of anything that happened afterwards. If Jesus said your son lives, you are guaranteed your son lives. And don't miss this. Jesus uttered the words before he believed the word. You see, his son living and the fever leaving was not dependent upon the man's belief or subsequent obedience. (laughs) Which obviously leads to a much larger question, right? So what's the point of the story? Look back at two progressions that occur within the text. First, John tells us the man believed the word, right? He believed the word and was obedient to head home. But following word, the miracle had actually taken place, And in realizing it had been Jesus who had healed his son, we're told what? What was the response? So he believes his word, he heads home, and then what happens? He sees the miracle, and he himself, we're told by John, believed, along with his whole household. There's two sets of belief here. Earlier in the passage, we read he believed the word of Jesus. Now at the end of the story, he himself believed. Now what is he believing at this point? What does he now believe? As I've mentioned, this nobleman was hopeless, desperate. Life had thrown him a nasty curve he couldn't catch. Much like Tyler Flowers, but that's a different story. The man, what does he do? What could he do? He's done everything one could, nothing's worked. His son would die. He was powerless over his circumstances. Yet, the truth about this man was that his pressing need was not his core problem. While it's true his son was sick and likely to die, the truth was that this man, along with his entire household, was lost in their sins and would die an eternal death. What was the man, what was his core need? Yes, he needed his son healed, but more importantly, the man needed a savior. 
consider that when this man initially came to Jesus, he did not believe Jesus was the Christ, the Savior of the world. That was not his confession. All the man knew was what others had said about Jesus, that he could perform miracles, and that was enough for him to come. So he comes to Jesus, and he proceeded to beg Jesus to save his son, to come with him. I mean, what did he have to lose anyway? You see, life, as it will do to all at some point, had driven this nobleman to his knees. And to his credit, it drove him to his knees before Jesus. Not a bad place to be on your knees. But please notice, Jesus, from the very first moment, wanted to do more in this man's life than heal his son. Jesus wanted to reveal to the man that he was his savior. Come back to the progression. The normal man was willing to come to Jesus, not really knowing who Jesus was. Since this was the case, he's convinced Jesus would have to come back to Capernaum in order to heal his son, which was not true. Jesus then rebukes the people for seeking signs and wonders before turning to the man and saying, go, your son lives. To the man's credit, he believed the word of Jesus that his son lives, and it was only when he came to realize that it had actually been Jesus who had healed his son that what happens? He comes to see Jesus for who he really was. The Christ, the Savior of the world. It's in that realization that a second belief happens, right? I mean, really, should there be any surprise that the man now himself believed in Jesus, who he was, along with his whole household? The willingness to obey Jesus' word undoubtedly set this man upon a journey by which he could see the miracle and have Jesus revealed for who he actually was. Disobedience, doubt concerning Jesus' promises would have naturally prolonged that, right? Logically. But our story is clear. It was the moment the man realized the miracle had taken place before he had done anything. It was that realization that caused him to receive Jesus as his Savior. Think of it this way. The reason belief in and obedience to God's word is so important in the Christian life is not that God's blessings are contingent upon them, but that they enable us to experience God's grace sooner than we would otherwise. Friend, please don't be mistaken. And legalism is so tricky. Your obedience is not the linchpin to God's blessings. Obedience just expedites the process of you seeing those blessings manifest quicker. Consider for a moment. What deepens your faith in Jesus? I mean, really. Like, what deepens your love for Jesus? A belief, a belief in and obedience to God's word? Or is your allegiance and love and appreciation and admiration deepened when you realize this truth that God's blessings 
often happen in spite of you and not because of you. That they're not dependent on your performance or your obedience. Yes, they can expedite those things, but it's not dependent on it. You see, this is why grace changes everything. Let me try to hammer this point home another way. How do you know someone really, genuinely loves you? How do you know? When their love manifests as a reciprocation to your love or something you did, or when you see their love manifest without any conditions at all. Like when you earn that person's love or when that person's love is just freely given to you. Think about marriage. Ladies, what's the more meaningful moment? Your husband giving you a spa day after he returns from a two-week business trip or when he unexpectedly drops off the kids at grandma's so the two of you can go and enjoy a spa day. <laughs> I can tell you what it is. After two weeks alone with a house full of children, a day at the spa is a necessary reward. I don't feel special. This is my right. You're taking those snotty-nosed brats, and I'm going to the spa. The truth is that's the least you could do. And I should, I should note, I've never been gone for two weeks, and so that's why uh, there hasn't been a spot. Fellas, fellas, <laughs> fellas. What's better? What's better? Your wife capitulating to a little nookie because you begged, and frankly, there was nothing good on Netflix, or coming home from work only to find the wife has sent the kids to grandma's for the night and she's picked up something sexy from home goods. That was the most PG I can make it. You'll have to use your imagination. My point. What yields greater endearment? When Jesus works in your life in response to your obedience or when his blessings manifest apart from your involvement at all. It's that that changed the man's life. Now, Zach, Pastor Zach, I hate to tell you this, but don't you think that sounds a little bit Calvinistic? My answer is first, shut up. Two, no, not at all. You, you can't escape free wills all over the passage. All over the nobleman in his desperation, an obvious need, he still comes. He still had to make a decision to act, yes, upon limited knowledge, but he still had to come from Capernaum to Jesus. And once he arrived, the man still had to make the decision to humble himself and then make a request for Jesus to heal his son. Then his decision to obey God's word and trust in God's promises, which undoubtedly expedited the entire process, he had to make that choice. That was an act of will. And the very final act of believing in Jesus as the Christ, the Savior of the world, it demanded from him the most important decision he would ever make in his life. Lots of free will decisions. Nothing being forced. 
Now, well, there is a lot that you can glean from this passage. The fundamental reason John includes this story in his gospel, why it's here, is that he wants you, the reader, to see that while belief in and obedience to Jesus' word will set you upon the path of seeing all of God's blessings manifest for you, while it will set you upon a path where you will see Jesus for who he truly is. I'm not downplaying obedience. But what John wants you to take away is that it's God's grace. I love demonstrated without condition that ultimately endears a person to Jesus for the rest of their life. A belief in God's word sets the stage for a person to experience God's grace and place their faith in Jesus. The nobleman believed Jesus, believed his word, but it was the moment he saw that Jesus had healed his son before he had believed that changed his life for all of eternity. The man came to Jesus desperate to see his son spared a physical death. And yet, when it was all said and done, this man along with his entire household, believed in a Savior who'd give them life for eternity. It's an amazing story. As we close, if any...